Welcome to the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm at Maeve Conran with KGNU. Delighted to be here at the Boulder Bookstore with my co-host Arsene Kashkashian and an author from Colorado joining us here at the bookstore. Jim Davidson from Fort Collins has written the book that we have been reading for the month of May. It's called The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. Jim, it's great to have you here at the bookstore. Welcome to the Radio Book Club. Thank you. I'm excited to be with you too and very excited to be in the store. It's great to be back. It is good to be in person. Well, this is a book really in two parts. And the first part is what happened in 2015. You were headed up to Everest, which really was your lifelong dream. I think since you were a kid, you wanted to climb Everest. In 2015, that was your goal. But that was the year the deadly, deadly earthquake hit Nepal. And it was the deadliest year, the deadliest uh, season for Everest. I believe ultimately 19 people died, 18 people that day and then somebody else died subsequently. And then the second part is your decision to go back two years later and finally reach the summit. But, But take us back to 2015 to be on the side of Mount Everest when the earthquake hit. Take us back to that moment when you're in the tent. Yes, like you said, it had been a lifelong dream of mine. I'd been a climber for 33 years when I went in 2015, been building up for this literally for decades. And, you know, everything was going pretty well. You're in Nepal for several weeks, getting to the base of the mountain. And the day we left from base camp at 17,500 feet and moved up to Camp 1 at about 20,000 feet, that was April 25th of 2015, and that's the day that a 7.8 magnitude slammed into the mountain. So after 33 years of being a climber, uh, I was only on the mountain about nine hours when the expedition was over. And the way it arrived was not with the ground shaking. We heard one avalanche come down near our tent, and it was falling 4,000 vertical feet. And believe it or not, that really didn't upset us, because you hear that every day on Everest. You kind of get used to that noise. But then a second avalanche started on the other side of the valley that came down 6,000 vertical feet, And that's when I realized something was going wrong. And that's when the first wave of the earthquake rippled through the glacier and lifted our tent up into the air. Then dropped us down and then lifted us up again. And being in the tent was like being in a raft uh, on the ocean as the swells were going underneath our tent. Now, you were lucky because the camp you were at, you were above base camp. But it was base camp that really got hit by that. I mean, the avalanches that came through. Tell us about what exactly happened on the mountain and, and where the destruction happened. Yeah, you, you've summarized it well. We were at Camp 1. And we were very lucky because those avalanches came out from two sides, mostly wind and pulverized ice, and it kind of ran out of speed and stopped a couple hundred yards away from us on both sides. So no one at Camp 1 was killed. Nobody was even injured other than being very, very scared. But down in base camp, they had a different avalanche. And their avalanche consisted of a lot of rocks, lots and lots of rocks. And it came down 3,000 vertical feet, and it had so much momentum that it actually went sideways almost a mile and went rushing into the base camp and tore right through, through the middle third of base camp like a big tsunami of wind and rocks. And that's what sadly injured about 70 people and killed 18 immediately that day. And a 19th person died later on, which made it the deadliest day ever on Everest. So a couple of days after the earthquake hit, you were brought by helicopter from Camp 1 back down to base camp. So what was that like? What, what did you find? Well, we knew that there was a problem in base camp within the first few hours, but over the course of two days being trapped at Camp 1, we got the word of what was going on, that there were people injured, that there were people killed, 
And then we found out more information that the earthquake had caused damage all across Nepal. So we were kind of marooned up there for two days because our route had been wiped out, but we had to think about what we were going to be walking into. We were scared as heck to fly in these helicopters at 20,000 feet because they can barely stay in the air. Stepped on the ground at base camp, so glad to be off the mountain and away from those avalanche slopes near us, but we had just stepped into another disaster. Now, most of the medical emergency was over because this was about 40 hours after the earthquake had happened. So the wounded had been flown out already, um, but there were still some walking wounded around camp. So within the hour, I got involved with my teammates of digging through rock and avalanche debris that had overrun our one and only medical camp. Uh, we were trying to recover medical equipment out from the dirt and the ice uh, that had been washed across the tents. So we're literally digging with our hands. And then later on, I got involved in the process of loading a few bodies into a helicopter. So it really brought home the nature of the tragedy on Mount Everest and, of course, realizing that this was going on all across Nepal. So when you got out of base camp, you came into town and you looked in the mirror and you took a photo of yourself in the mirror. And the devastation to people around the world was obvious when you posted it on social media. But that wasn't really what you were thinking about because you were thinking everything was outward, how you could help other people. But... Tell us about what happened when you posted that photo on social media. I, I got back to Kathmandu. We had spent about uh, two weeks in the earthquake zone trying to help disassemble some houses and raise some money and slowly walking our way down the valley. So we'd been in there for a while, and you're right, I had no physical injuries at all and was sufficiently you know, fed and, and watered and clothed and everything. And when I got back to a Kathmandu hotel, before I checked into my room, I just went into the restroom. I was amazed to have running water after a month in, in the high mountains. And I saw myself in the mirror. And I thought, wow, I look, look kind of thin and, wow, I look kind of rugged. I'll take a picture just for fun and throw it on social media, but also to tell people I'm back in Kathmandu, I'm safe. So I thought people would say, congratulations, you're safe. And messages just started pouring in on social media back to me saying, you don't look good, get some help. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm fine. And I, I just couldn't see it other than I looked a little skinny and beat up. And um, I'm a wilderness first responder, and I've been a first responder on a number of accidents. And so I started looking at it. I said, what would I say if this person was a patient of mine? And I began to see it in the eyes. And it took me probably a half an hour to understand what my friends and followers on Facebook were, saying, were seeing and what they were saying about it. And that's when I realized, yeah, I was kind of traumatized mentally and, and spiritually. In terms of the reaction you got to that photo, it, what I found really fascinating about all of that was the fact that you could actually communicate even when you were at Camp One with the outside world. You had a satellite phone, you were able to send texts, not just to your wife, but you were getting a massive influx of media requests. And there were some funny stories of Anderson Cooper trying to get you on a show, but then Anderson was running late and you're trying to explain to this producer, do you know where I am? I can't actually hang on here for another 20 minutes while Anderson gets it together so I can be on his show. I mean, you were dealing with all of that in addition to the, the trauma of having lived through all of this. I mean, take us through all of those dynamics that were happening at that time. Yeah, it really was quite a slur of feelings and situations going on. Uh, this is all happening that you described when we were stuck at Camp One for about 40 hours. And you're right, I first used my GPS texting device that sends a signal through the GPS satellite system. I sent message, messages to my wife and to my climbing buddies back home to find out what they knew about the earthquake and uh, the devastation. And it was kind of like a slow assemblage of a, of a puzzle. And that's when we realized over the course of a day or two what was happening around the country and how bad it was. And somewhere along the way, my wife told me that she had media 
request. They wanted to talk to me. And I said, what are you talking about? And they had seen my messages that were going out over the GPS system. And also, I could post directly to Facebook and Twitter. And so she was getting requests. And it just became a, a small avalanche of media interest. And I realized, well, I can tell them what's going on from the mountain while we were still stuck there. And so it just became out of control in a matter of a day or so. I was getting all these requests. And because of the time difference, 12 hours away, I'm doing this, what for me was late at night after we all, we go to bed at seven o'clock on the expedition. So I'm staying up till 10, 11 o'clock at night, exhausted in the deep, deep cold, maybe 20, 25 below zero Fahrenheit. And I just had, I had to stop after a while. I just couldn't do anymore because I was wearing myself out and not protecting myself to be a member of the team to try and get off the mountain. So yeah, it became overwhelming and also emotionally. I wanted to share what was happening so the world would put its attention on Nepal and start bringing aid into the Nepali people. But there was only so much I could do energy-wise. But then as well, the media cycle shifted. And, and as we know, a new disaster will happen or just the focus will shift because, you know, a couple of days later, and certainly when you got to Kathmandu, you were ready and able to do interviews. And it was like, oh, kind of gone from the front page now, Jim. And it's shocking when you think how quickly it turns because what was still happening in Nepal and actually, in fact, how it's still playing out and, and the recovery many years later. Exactly. I mean, I was still on the ground, as were so many other people, and so we're still living it. It was still opening up and unfolding and getting worse by the day, and the news cycle had moved on. And as I shared in the next Everest, I, I was stunned. I said, what do you mean it, the, the world's moved on? It's getting worse here, not better. And there was sort of that uh, realization that the world moves along quickly, and that actually kind of fueled my mission when I got back from Nepal, which was I realized I couldn't no longer move rocks or help first aid-wise, but I could help raise money. And so, like a lot of my teammates, uh, I spent months uh, doing you know, uh, fundraising events and speaking to raise money for Nepal because uh, it was devastating for Nepal. They lost 8,900 lives. Tens of thousands of people lost their home. I think it was in the range of like you know, 20,000 or more classrooms caved in in Nepal. So they're, they're still rebuilding now. And of course, as often happens with earthquakes in countries that don't have advanced building standards that we might have in other countries, they, they're devastated even more because of how just the communities are built and houses and everything are built. That's correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a geologist, and so I knew what, on the ground there were going to be more aftershocks, um, and they were. We had some when we were stuck at Camp One, and they went on for days while we were there. And in fact, they actually can go on for months and years, and they are still continuing today, even six years later, very small aftershocks from that initial quake. So I thought maybe we could have you read um, a piece um, about being up on the mountain during the earthquake, and just to give people a real visceral experience of how, how it is in the book. So yeah, tell us about this little part you're gonna read. Yeah, this is just when, when the quake had hit us at Camp One, and we were camped at a place called the Western Coombe, which is a Welsh word, C-W-M, unusual spelling, and it means dead end valley. Um, and climbers have taken calling the Western Coombe the Valley of Silence, because the walls are anywhere from 4,000 to 6,000 feet high, and it blocks out the wind, and it's very, very quiet in there. So we're camped in the Valley of Silence, the earthquake has happened, the avalanches are still roaring towards us, we stepped out of the tent to see if we could see where they were coming from, but the avalanches were bringing in so much ice powder and ground up uh, glacier that we had to duck back in the tent. We couldn't breathe outside. So we're scrambling back in the tent and visibility is zero. And this is me just after I got inside the tent. I opened my eyelids but only had a blurry view from the ice dust and water droplets covering my eyeballs. Blinking a few times cleared my vision. I was alone. Bart, Bart, where are you? I yelled. I could hardly hear myself over the roaring winds. The valley of silence was no longer silent. The tent stopped gyrating. 
I sat taller and thought, is it over? Then an even stronger gale slammed into the north side of the tent where the second avalanche was still cascading down. At any moment, the airborne crystals could give way to bouncing ice blocks the size of microwaves, refrigerators, or even houses. That's Jim Davidson reading from The Next Everest, describing there what it was like to be on the side of Mount Everest in 2015, which was the mountain's deadliest day as an earthquake struck and devastation ensued. Well, Jim, two years later, you went back to Everest and you did finally summit. But there's a lot in the book that's so interesting about the preparation that goes in to such an expedition, physically, mentally, not just for you, but your whole family, really, because you're away for weeks at a time, but you're also spending so much of your time preparing, training for a summit. So take us through just some of what it takes to embark on something like this. Yeah, assuming you've got years and years of climbing experience that I think you should have before going to a big mountain like that, then you have to do a year of intense training. And it it has to be not only more than you've ever done before, it has to take you places where you've never been mentally or physically. And that takes a lot of time. You have to gather a lot of equipment and you have to make sure that all the equipment works together. Does my glove interfere with my watch? Does that keep my jacket from going down? Micro, micro things like this, because at high altitude, a small problem like that can just get magnified. And all that takes a lot of time. And and over the years, I've been a climber for 39 years now, married to the same lady for 31 years. And my wife often says, it's not even the expedition. It's all the time beforehand. Uh, I spent about 900 hours the year before I went back uh, the second time just in physical training, let alone, you know, equipment prep and thinking and reading. So it really adds up. And that's why I shared in the book, I've got all these micro habits. I sleep less. I get up earlier. I don't wash my car. I I don't do any other sports. You just throw all that aside. But that's the kind of commitment level you need if you're going to do a big, big project or a big, big goal like this. Well, you struck me as being very organized and meticulous in your planning and uh, just in general, just the way you describe your life. Is that common among Everest climbers? Is that a prerequisite? Or do you see people who, who don't uh, take the same approach? And, and just how does that shake out on the mountain? And as also, you've guided expeditions. Do you, is it a struggle for you if you see somebody on an expedition that you're guiding that isn't nearly as meticulous or organized as you are and you think, there's things we could have avoided if, if this person had done what they needed to do. Yeah, I'm definitely a planner for sure. Um, you know, I do that in all aspects of my life. Uh, I'm a scientist, a, a geologist by training, so I probably, you know, do it more than some of my peers. But, you know, everybody can organize their life and their equipment the way they want, but you better know where your stuff is and you better know how to get it and that it works with other systems. So I think that if people are not really organized, they're not very good team members. They kind of drop out over time as we go to bigger and bigger peaks. They just find that they just can't keep their act together and all their gear together for 30 days, 40 days, 60 days without error. I mean, how many times do you take off your sunglasses in 60 days? Don't put them down and walk away. Know where your sunglasses are. And you're right, I've been an expedition leader for university students out of CSU and Fort Collins on a number of occasions. And we definitely try and push that on them a little bit. To You need to know where your stuff is. You need to know that this stuff fits in your pack. Don't show up on summit day and not know how to attach this piece of equipment to your pack because it drags the team down. And the higher you go, uh, the thinner the margin goes for error. So we can't have little mistakes that become big problems. In terms of the actual summit itself, I think there is a, a popular conception that it's once you get to the summit, that's it. And then that's the finish line. But you write about the finish line is making it safely 
back down again. And in fact, when you get to the summer, you're really only halfway there, which is totally true because so many accidents can happen on the way down for a variety of reasons, even though it's quicker to come down. You're tired. You've already, you know, you've expended so much energy to get up there. I mean, talk about that, that the actual process of going up, but then going down again, because so much attention is paid on getting to the summit, the 15 minutes or less that you actually get to be on the summit to enjoy this lifetime achievement. But then we never really focus as much on the journey down again. And yet that seems to be just as crucial, if not more crucial. You're right. I mean, in order to do a big goal, whether it's running a marathon or getting your degree or climbing a big mountain, you have to be driven towards that goal. In the case of mountaineering, I say you have to be summit driven. You have to really want to do it for all the reasons we've been discussing and all the time and money and effort. Um, But if being summit driven turns into summit fever, which is a blind rush to the summit, no matter what the conditions may be, no matter how you may feel this day, that's when you get yourself in trouble and potentially other people around you. So you have to have self-control all the way to the top and all the way back down. And on the way up, we've got all those physical drives and mental urges and everything. And there's potential to kind of let go when you reach the summit. It's like, ah, I can relax. I've met my goal now. Well, at that point, you're sleep deprived, you're dehydrated, you're underweight, you're underfed, uh, and now you have to go down. And if you stop paying attention, that's when accidents happen easily. So when I help lead college students on trips, when we get to the summit, we all celebrate and take our photos and have a good time and everything. And then we huddle up again. I say, okay, the safe half of the trip is over. Now comes the dangerous part, going down when we're tired. You've got to stay focused. And in the case of Everest, it's even more so because we lose so much weight on the mountain. Over the, I went to the mountain in the best shape of my life at age 54. I was lean. I felt great. And when I went up there and came back, I found out I'd lost 22 pounds on the mountain, which may sound good, like for weight loss. Turns out I only lost two pounds of fat and 20 pounds of muscle. And that 20 pounds of muscle probably took me a decade to put on. It's because you can't digest food up there. So your body just eats the muscle just for fuel. So when you get to the summit, you are weak, you have been up for, I'd been up for like about 28 hours by the time I summited because uh, you can't sleep at night because the air is so thin. So all that comes together. You've got to focus on the way down. And frankly, I was having some hallucinations. I shared in the book a little bit. I was carrying on conversations with my two climbing buddies in my head as I was descending this 2,000 foot tall steep ice wall at 24,000 feet. It's a very dangerous situation when you're coming down. In terms of hallucinations and what happens physically and mentally at that level because of what's happening to you physically, and also the lack of oxygen. I mean, you described there's a passage about a, a, a teammate who had to be evacuated before the summit in 2017 because of these hallucinations, whether it was exhaustion or lack of oxygen. I mean, what what is going on that, that creates that? What happens? Well, the, the exhaustion is a foundation and then the lack of oxygen starts to get to your brain. And yes, one of my teammates was having hallucinations at Camp 3, which is at 23,700 feet. And at that altitude, that first night there, um, veteran climbers had told me, this will be the worst night of your life. And indeed it is. It's, it's like having the flu and a hangover uh, and, and gasping for air all at the same time. Some people just literally sit up all night gasping for air. But you have to go through that first night 
to get your body as acclimatized as possible. So I woke up and one of my teammates was just babbling away to people that weren't there. And I would sort of engage in conversation with him because I was half asleep and I began to realize he was having a serious mental problem uh, because he was carrying on conversations about catching buses and meeting people for dinner and would they leave us behind if we missed the bus. And we had to give him some medicine and oxygen and help him get down the next day. But that kind of thing can lead to a, a fatal brain problem, cerebral edema, very quickly. So it's pretty scary. And when I say about high altitude, at high altitude, things go wrong fast and they go wrong big. Um, so you can be in a fine situation and a disaster an hour later. I was very interested in that each climber had their own Sherpa with them. And I was interested in your relationship with your Sherpa, which for the most part seems quite good. But there were a couple times towards the end where your Sherpa, there's one major time where your Sherpa thought maybe you weren't ready or you weren't prepared to go up and you had to really stick up for yourself. Can you talk about that dynamic and that situation that happened to you on the mountain? Yeah, you bet. I've been going to Nepal, uh, I've been five times over the, the years, and most people have great relationships with the people in Nepal, as I have. I've got some lifelong friends from the trips I've done. And the Sherpa people really help out, and other high-altitude workers really help Westerners like myself function in that super high-altitude environment. Um, and they're really welcoming culture, and there's a lot of Nepali people in the Boulder area as well, so there's a strong presence here locally. Um, the Sherpa that I was with in 2015 and 2017 was PK Sherpa from Portse. And we got along great for the most part, um, for sure. We did have some difference towards the end. It was not so much a question that he was concerned I wasn't quite ready, it's that I wasn't quite fast enough. Um, and so the team I went with was called International Mountain Guides. They're a commercial expedition operator. They basically keep track of everybody um, in a big giant logbook. And during the training sessions, as you're building up to this over weeks and weeks before the summit push, they keep track of how long it takes everybody to go from camp one to two, camp two to three. And uh, I was 54, so I was always pretty much middle of the pack. I knew I wasn't going to be out front with the strong 30-year-olds, but I wasn't in the back either. Um, so I was pretty much middle of the pack the whole way and met all the time standards. Uh, but my Sherpa was half my age. He was 27. And he, he was basically saying, we should go faster. And I was like, eh, I'm meeting all the time standards. And uh, most importantly to me as a veteran climber, I was arriving in camp with my act together. I wasn't stumbling in dehydrated, exhausted, collapsing to my knees. That's a, that's a bad way to finish a race. That's a bad way to arrive at a camp because then suddenly you're, you're useless. You, you need help. So he wanted me to go faster. And I understood why because uh, for the Sherpas, their reputation is based on their strength and their speed. So future work and future opportunities is based upon how fast you can go. And so what I say is on every speed is social currency. And so it was just a difference of uh, what the right speed was. Um, and certainly there's times in climbing when you've got to go flat out, but at high altitude, we're moving at far less than one mile per hour. So uh, you have to pace yourself for the long run. But we worked it through. He'd been up high before and I'd been up high. I'd climbed the uh, sixth highest peak in the world before at 26,000 feet. So we just found a pace that was very sustainable. And so basically it, what I say is you try to flow up the mountain. Don't stop. Don't sit down, just keep flowing up the mountain and then flow back down. So it actually worked out pretty well on the summit push, uh, even with some people in front of us, not a bad crowd, but some people in front of us, we summited in just about eight hours with a little bit of waiting, which is, you know, the range is sort of seven hours to 12. So it actually worked out just fine. You know, one of the, the most harrowing uh, descriptions is the ice falls, which are lower down between base camp and camp one. And there you could see why speed could be of, of essence, because Describe that area of the climb and what the dangers are and, and why people might want to get through there as fast as they can. You're absolutely right. The, the Kumbu Icefall is where the Kumbu Glacier goes over a series of cliffs. 
and the glacier descends, loses about 2,200 feet in elevation in about a mile. And so as a result, the glacier moves faster and it breaks up into pieces, thousands and thousands of pieces, anywhere from the size of your refrigerator up to the size of a gymnasium. And they're all moving all the time. In there, the glacier's flowing downhill on average about three feet to four feet per day. But it doesn't do it evenly like that. It might sit still for a month and then suddenly surge forward 100 feet. And it's like, imagine like if all the buildings in downtown Boulder started toppling over and flowing downhill at four feet per day. That's what it's like in there. So absolutely, everyone's trying to go as fast as they can in there. And we are often just absolutely gasping at maximum heart rate, maximum speed, because you want to get through there. But even still, it takes five hours to get through the Kumbu Icefall. So imagine spending five hours trying to sprint from one dangerous spot to the other. That's an average trip through the Kumbu Icefall. And I actually used that scary experience from 2015 to train harder for 2017 when I would do my hill sprints. I would you know, try and make myself go anaerobic and squeeze one more out. And on that very last lap, I would squeeze one more out by imagining myself being inside the icefall and someone screaming avalanche. And I would use that to sprint to the top of the hill and just utterly collapse in exhaustion at the top uh, because I thought someday I might wind up in that spot. Well, people from all over the world attempt to summit Everest every year. In 2015, after the avalanche, there were no more summits. Essentially, the mountain was closed and that had a huge impact on Nepal because this is a huge revenue generator. The trekking industry, but the permits, is it like $11,000? I think is how much it cost you, but who knows if it's more now? I mean, talk about what it means for the country of Nepal, positively and negatively as well, to have people from all around the world wanting to climb this mountain. You're, you're right. It is very expensive for sure. And the permit is $11,000 per person, just to, and that goes to the Nepali government, just to be allowed to climb the mountain. And of course, there's a lot of other expenses as well. Um, Nepal is a beautiful country. They have incredible mountains, incredible plains, great nature. But what they don't have is a lot of other kind of standard resources. They don't have an ocean, gold, oil. They don't have those things. So what they do have is that beauty. And so tourism is critically important to their economy. And that's in the form of, you know, tourists that come through, trekkers or backpackers, as well as climbers. It's really critical for them. And the uh, Everest season was shut down in 2014 because there was an icefall collapse that sadly killed 16 high mountain workers. So they had to stop the season in 2014, then 2015 with the quake. And now we've had 2020 uh, where there was nobody in there again because of the pandemic. So they've lost you know, three years out of six or seven. Uh, it's a huge, huge problem for them. I mean, people are literally just barely existing on the food they can grow on their land when there's no tourism. So they do need that for sure. The downsides of it, like any tourism, is more people come, more trash, more impact upon the land. And here in America, we have our own challenges managing our national parks. I mean, go to Rocky Mountain National Park on a Saturday in the summer, and you'll see the crowding problem. Think about the human waste. Think about the trash. You need a really good integrated system to manage that here in Rocky Mountain National. Well, they don't have that that much in Nepal. They're a poor country, so they don't have as many resources. So there is a cumulative impact of the tourism, but also that can lead to misunderstandings. When I came back and did a lot of speaking in 2016 about Nepal as part of the fundraisers, and also I'm a motivational speaker, so I, sh I share the story a lot, and people will say, isn't the mountain covered with trash and human waste? And I was kind of stumped by that. I said, that's, that's not what I saw. I saw a really pretty place. There are a few spots with trash still left over from previous decades. And there's definitely some human waste problems in places. But most of the mountain is pristine. 
So I did some calculations and put into the book about how much trash has there been and how much human waste there is and try to share, yes, there is a problem that needs management, but don't be fooled. The mountains are not covered with trash or waste. So the book's titled Next Everest. So you've done Everest now. So what, what is your next Everest? What does that title mean to you at this point in your life? Yeah, the, the title came to me late in the writing process um, because, uh, you know, I, people would say, oh, you've, you've climbed Everest, that's the biggest one. I guess you're done climbing now. And I would look at them confused. I said, no, I'm a lifelong climber. I'm, I'm going to keep climbing until, hopefully, until I'm 88 years old and can, can barely walk up a 10-foot hill. That's, that'll be climbing to me then. So I want to keep climbing for sure. Uh, but to me, the next Everest means that there's always another opportunity or another challenge ahead. I'm probably not going to go back to Mount Everest. I can't go back to any mountain bigger than Everest, but there's going to be some other Everest in my life. As it turns out, the Everest that came to all of us was the pandemic, uh, and that brought challenge and change and uncertainty to all of us. And I started writing the book long before the pandemic. So to me, the next Everest is whatever the next big challenge or the next big difficulty is in your life, in our life as a community, that's the next Everest. And we've just had a tough one with the pandemic, and I still think we're coming out of it. And that's why I try to share a few lessons in the book about how to deal with change and uncertainty, because this happened with the pandemic. Hopefully, we'll have a great couple of years. But you know what? There's something else coming. I don't know whether it's one year or one decade ahead, but economic, health problems, I don't know what it is. Something else is coming down the pike. So we have to be ready to deal with that and stay as resilient as we can, because there's going to be a next Everest coming at us all at some point. Well, Jim Davidson has been our guest at the Radio Book Club. His latest book, The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. Jim's going to stay on for additional conversation now as part of After Hours at the Radio Book Club, the podcast-only edition. And so do tune in, subscribe to the podcast to get that. But in the meantime, Jim, thank you so much. It's such a fascinating read and it's great to hear this in person as well. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for your thoughtful questions. It's been fun. And as we always do at the end of each episode, we announce the book we're inviting listeners to read along with us. So for June, Arson, what have you selected? We're going to read The Dead Husband by Carter Wilson. This is kind of a thriller. It's a story of a woman who left her past in an unsolved crime only to have her husband found dead 20 years later. So then she's going to have to confront her past. It's going to be very exciting. A thriller that's uh, lined up for June. You can find out more about the Radio Book Club at news.kgnu.org. Subscribe to the podcast, get all of the bonus content and listen to past editions. And you can catch the Radio Book Club on the fourth Thursday of every month at 9am on KGNU. As always, I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU and my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.